Welcome to Detroit Opera's Opera Here podcast. This is Arthur White coming to you from the Detroit Opera House. Joining me today is the Associate Artistic Director of Detroit Opera and the greatest Wagnerian soprano of our days, Miss Christine Gerke. Thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really happy to be here, and I'm happy to be here with our listeners as well. Uh, we're thrilled, actually, to have all of you joining us today as we take a look at the opera Madama Butterfly by Giacomo Puccini. This production marks the 10th time Detroit Opera has mounted Butterfly in its 52-year history, and today we're going to speak a bit about the opera's background, what we can expect to see in this new production, and we're also going to hear a bit from the stage director, Matthew Ozawa. Madame Butterfly opens on October 7th and runs through October 15th at the Detroit Opera House. Giacomo Puccini's opera, Madame Butterfly, is an opera in three acts, which premiered on February 17, 1904 at La Scala, Milan. The Italian libretto was by Luigi Illica and Giuseppe Giacosa. It is based off a short story, Madame Butterfly, by John Luther Long. Long's version was dramatized by playwright David Belasco into a one-act play, Madame Butterfly, A Tragedy of Japan. Now, the play premiered in New York in 1900 and soon moved to London, where Puccini saw it that summer. OperaBase.com, which tracks worldwide performances of opera, lists Butterfly as the seventh most frequently performed opera in the world today. It has not been out of the top 10 in its 119-year history, although it was dropped from the Metropolitan Opera schedule between 1942 and 1945 due to the military hostilities between the United States and Japan. Although the opera has enjoyed great success with the opera-going public, the opera was a total flop at its premiere in 1904. Inadequate time to rehearse because Puccini was late finishing the score, an unusually long second act, and no aria for the tenor, all spelled disaster for Puccini. So the opera was immediately pulled and he revised it. He broke up the second act after the famed humming chorus and he added the tenor aria Adio Fiorito Azil and it was re-premiered three months later and has been a success ever since. Our new production of Madame Butterfly is a co-production of Detroit Opera, Cincinnati Opera, Pittsburgh Opera, and Utah Opera. Detroit Opera's theme this season is Collide and Collage. I actually can't think of a better example of cultures colliding than in this story, with an American naval officer, a quintessential sign of imperialism, attempting to impose his cultural perspectives onto one Japanese woman and her culture. The all-Japanese and Japanese-American creative team, led by stage director Matthew Ozawa, have reclaimed the opera's narrative through the lens of an entirely female Japanese design collective. Director Matthew Ozawa said, and I quote, This production seeks to release this opera's wings for all to express anew. We have come to love this Western fantasy. However, it is not the fantasy of the Japanese identity, a fact that the production hopes to successfully amplify. When the opera opens, it is in present day. B.F. Pinkerton enters his apartment and dons a virtual reality headset to escape into a fantasy. Within moments, he joins a game which transports him to Nagasaki, where he embodies his avatar as a U.S. Navy lieutenant and meets his fantasy, the beautiful geisha Chocho-san, also known as Butterfly. In this production, all of the opera's events are the invention of a modern-day gaming Pinkerton. I think this is brilliant. Well, I had I had the great fortune of seeing the production when it opened in uh, Cincinnati 
uh, just uh, back uh, in July it was, and I was just kind of blown out of my seats. My the first time I had I had seen uh, Butterfly, I was probably I think eighteen in Chicago Lyric Opera with wow. Catherine Malfitano. If you remember that soprano from the old oh, days, God. and uh, and I remember the curtain finally came down and I was just in tears, bawling. But since then, I've been kind of jaded to. Uh, Butterfly. I mean, I've always enjoyed the music, of course, and I've always gone. And uh, but for some reason, this production with its new approach, for the first time, I, I saw myself in Pinkerton, which I had never seen myself in Pinkerton before. And so this is this production. I'm really, really excited that this is coming to the Detroit Opera House. Now, I have not actually seen it. I have seen bits and pieces of things on clips, of course, but I am incredibly excited to see it in person. And as you say, I think that. You know, our goal right now, especially, is to bring in a new audience and allow people to see that opera is for everyone. The way that Matthew Ozawa has gone about this to create a fantasy world, and I mean, I don't know if you've ever dealt with a VR headset. I, I love it because yeah, I'm not. Oh, you'll see me popping around my apartment and my when I'm traveling with mine on trying to do exercises. I look ridiculous. However, it is incredible to be able to immerse yourself into what can really be a virtual fantasy. And I think that this is a brilliant way to talk about this story, because in fact, it is not a truthful depiction, but it is someone's idea of what this world is about. And I I just, it's amazing to hear even Matthew talk about it. Let me ask you this question, Chrissy, as someone who's, you know, still, you know, you know you're on the stage performing these fantastic uh, works, especially other Puccini operas like Turandot, which will be at the Met next season. I'm very excited. This idea, you know, when if I go to see opera in Europe, often these stories are updated. They're, they're, they're almost always updated. You never see typically a traditional rendering or a setting in a European opera house. Right. But in the United States, we seem to be sort of caught between these two worlds. You have those who really, really want to see the traditional, and you have others who really, really, really want to see something new. And so what do you make of where we are, this juxtaposition, this this sort of going between these two worlds? Well, to throw myself into the world of the memes, why not both? (laughs) I mean, there's no reason that we can't have both of these things. There's something really beautiful about looking at something in a traditional way, as long as it is appropriate. And then for me to be able to update it, it just, it goes to show that this art form is not about a singularity. It is something that can continue to grow. And even the works that we think that we know, there's always something to learn about them. There's always a new perspective to take. And that is how the things that we still have and that we have that are part of the traditional canon, that's how they continue to grow and live. And looking at things that are problematic, as this opera has been. You know, I am not someone who is interested in shying away from something that seems problematic. I love the idea that it is there to remind us what we have not done right and and to look at how we have moved through history and what we can continue to learn as we go forward. So I'm, I'm so excited that we are doing this and I'm so excited about this particular team taking it on. Yeah. And we're going to hear from Matthew Ozawa in just a bit. Uh, when I was listening to some of his interview that he did with Detroit Opera about this production, uh, he talked about the fact that, you know, this opera, of course, when Puccini wrote it in 1904, he wrote it for the audience that was in front of him in right. 1904. And if you think back 1904, you know, there were no cell phones. You know, the car, the you know, automobile was in its infancy. Women couldn't vote at the time. The civil rights movement hadn't, you know, hadn't happened yet. And so we, we are bound, I think, to look at these pieces now with our own own eyes. So 100%. I'm very, very excited about this. 
You know, one of the things I was thinking about this production, uh, Christine, of course, you know, it was said that uh, Puccini, you know, updated, revised this opera at least no, no less than five times. And I was kind of thinking back to our Faust production that we did uh, last season where we heard like the original uh, version, but was not necessarily the version that most people were used to hearing. Right. Well, it wasn't. But what's interesting is, although this production is certainly giving a different take and it is allowing people to view, literally, uh, the, the action in this piece through a different lens, what you're going to be hearing is all of the music that you know. What you're going to be seeing is the same vibrant colors and the beautiful costumes that you know. The storytelling has not changed. You will see everything that you're expecting to see. It's simply the story is told through a different lens and it is vibrant and beautiful and colorful and incredible. And I say all of this having only seen clips and pictures. So I am excited as someone who is coming to this production new, as I hope you all will. Well, that leads us right into our, our special feature of recently, uh, Detroit Opera had the chance to sit down with stage director Matthew Ozawa to talk about this production. And I want to play just a clip from our conversation, uh, but thought I would first give a bit of a, an intro of his bio. Uh, Matthew Ozawa is a stage director, artistic director, and educator who has firmly cemented himself as one of the preeminent creative forces in the opera world today. Uh, Ozawa served three years as assistant professor of music at the University of Michigan School of Music, Theater, and Dance. And in 2022, he was named the chief artistic administration officer of Lyric Opera of Chicago, a newly created role that leverages Ozawa's expertise as both a creative and a leader in the arts. I have actually directed Madama Butterfly twice before. And having been in the opera industry now for 20 years, I have certainly seen it several times and, and worked on it numerous times. And I would say that something that is important to know before walking into our concept is that prior to directing it, I always felt othered. I didn't feel like this was a story or a visioning of it that actually connected to me as a Japanese American. Um, I have definitely experienced on working on it, moments where people have, I think, made me feel less than um, in their hopes to make me feel included. But because the piece itself historically and in the performance tradition, put Caucasians in yellow face, encouraged individuals to shuffle around the space or um, use stereotyped gestures of what they view the Japanese to be. What happens is there is a, a, a perception, a distorted perception of these stereotypes which to an Asian American actually can be really quite damaging. It actually leads people to assume that you're uh, servile and submissive and quiet and that you yourself will inhabit the same things that they are inhabiting on the stage. In, in, in witnessing that, in I think digging into the why we're doing Butterfly, and why now, 
I am one of the only Japanese American, if not the only Japanese American opera directors in the country. In an unusual way, Butterfly literally is, in some respects, my story. I am Hapa, so I'm half Japanese, half Caucasian. I am actually trouble. I'm the product of, of Pinkerton and Butterfly, although they're reverse. So my father's Japanese and my mother is, is Caucasian. And so in many respects, I intrinsically understand the East-West conflict as much as I, in being fourth generation Japanese American, understand the tensions that have existed for the Japanese community and the Asian community here in the United States of America. My father was actually born in an internment camp at the end of World War II. And when he was growing up, and definitely when I was growing up, we were taught to be as assimilated as possible, to be as passing as possible, to not have any accents, to follow the path of any other American. And I actually did not really get in tune to my Japanese side until we moved uh, abroad to Singapore, where suddenly instead of being a minority here in the US, I was a part of a majority. And it was then that I realized, wait a second, I, I'm, I am Asian and actually I'm, I'm Japanese. And that led to a very interesting road of me traveling to Japan, studying the Japanese art forms of Kabuki and No and Bunraku and really becoming, I think, interested in and passionate about multiculturalism, um, seeing things through a global lens and trying to find my identity in the arts that isn't boxed in or reduced to only one facet. Now, something I usually say with, some, with directing Madame a Butterfly, having directed it before, is if I was not Japanese American, I'm not positive this is the piece I would be directing over and over and over again. I think in some respects I, I've been asked to do it because I am Asian. And because I'm Japanese, I feel an, a, an immense amount of duty to actually help reclaim the story and the narrative for the Asian community, to reimagine it, to reinterpret it, to explore it, and to completely take it apart, to put it back together for the most diverse audience possible, to create a production and have a vision for it that not only enables those that love the tradition to still find their way in and love what they love about it while still maybe thinking about things in a different way, but helping those that have never been to opera or have felt othered by opera to see a version of this where they actually might be able to see themselves in it. So with that, this uh, container, this vision, which we went through many different versions of, of it. We looked at different containers. I thought maybe we'd set it in a contemporary community center, any number of scenarios. And in the end, when we looked at the source material, so of course, when you're looking at the Pierre Lotti uh, story, um, John Luther Long story, the Belasco play, and then Puccini's opera, and of course there are five versions of it, um, the standard versions of fifth that we now know. All of these were written and created by white men, most of whom had never set foot in Japan. And, and with the all-female Japanese team, 
we kept talking about what was our way into this narrative. We kept coming to sort of a crossroads, realizing that actually what we were thinking about and digesting and their, their feelings about, about Butterfly, who Butterfly is, we kept realizing, wait, this actually isn't a realistic, true representation of Japan or Japanese women. This is actually a fantasy and it is a white man's fantasy of it. So we have actually set this in contemporary day. And I will say that what's also so important in, in looking at a classic like Madame Butterfly is we have to see it in 2023, 24, 25 and onwards in the contemporary setting, in the zeitgeist that we're living in. We have been impacted by a pandemic. We have been impacted by a racial reckoning and we can't actually just go to the theater and pretend like none of that existed because it is literally what we're living in. And so as we are in investigating and looking at what does it mean to see this through a contemporary setting, we are setting it in Pinkerton's apartment. He is a modern day male. He lives alone. He doesn't have necessarily a community and perhaps it is the pandemic and he hasn't had a lot of human interactions and his only way in to actually having interactions with humans and and finding what he ultimately wants which is love but love with an Asian woman um, is through gaming it's a form of, of a grand escape that he can go into worlds, he can sort of control those worlds, he can manipulate the world, he can make it what he wants to make it. And as a result, what we have is this apartment um, starts to be inhabited by this fantasy uh, virtual reality world once he puts on the headset. And this entire apartment starts to break apart and starts to reveal this huge fantasy of the house that he purchases through this game. And the fantasy, of course, gets more and more wild, filled with color and even more beautiful, but allows us as those who are Japanese to actually pull apart not only things that are Japanese, but also the West's version of what they think is Japanese. So I got to tell you, Christine, I am so excited that I have you uh, here to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, since you are, you know, one of the preeminent singers on the stage today, what is it like? Because, you know, I pretty much have always been a Verdi and Puccini fan. And so, you know, Verdi, I just love. Puccini just knows how to tug at my heartstrings, whether it's that that scene at the end of the third act of Manon Lascaux or, or Butterfly, her tutu piccolo idio. And so as someone who does Puccini singing, tell me, what are some of the, what is it like to, first of all, sing one of those fabulous, creamy lines uh, of Puccini? Oh my gosh, Puccini's amazing. I mean, you know, it, it actually feels the same way to us that it does to you. There is nothing like a Puccini orchestration and nothing like a Puccini line. It 
really does tug at us as well, but maybe for different reasons. <laughs> I mean, uh, I have never had the opportunity to sing Butterfly being a six foot German girl, but there's uh, something to be said for that. And I'm rather grateful because in fact, I have the utmost respect for ladies who sing the title role for so many reasons. The tessitura, and talking about tessitura, that means where a role sits. The tessitura of this role sits so high. And the idea of being able to create such beautiful spinny lines in the place where Puccini wrote them, to me, there is an immense fragility to that. And Puccini was not stupid. I'm certain he did it on purpose. But there is something so daring and so you, you have to trust everything in you that that beauty is going to come out in that moment. And I'm, I'm speaking specifically, of course, about Butterfly's big aria. And when you're thinking about the opening of this, it is so small and so daring that all you can do is take a deep breath and have the faith that it will come out. And it's literally what she is doing in her heart, in the story, in this moment. It is, it is astounding. The orchestration is big and lush. The, the, the fragility of the characters, the strength of the characters, it all comes through. I'm, I'm such a, a huge fan of Puccini's and I, I just think that this score is astounding. Fantastic. Can I ask for a little scoop? Is it possible we might see you add Tosca to your repertoire? Well, you never know. You never know. Butterfly, definitely not. Tosca, I'll give you a maybe. <laughs> ah, I can't wait. I think we should write in. People should write in and say, Tosca, <laughs> definitely. Well, Christine Gerke, thank you so much for joining me today. I always learn something new when I'm in your presence. Well, and I always love having a conversation with you about just about anything. And also thank you to all of you for listening to our Glimpse into Detroit Opera's production of Madam Butterfly. We hope to see all of you at Detroit Opera House for this exciting production, which opens our season on October 7th and runs through October 15th at the Detroit Opera House. To purchase tickets to Madam Butterfly or to find out more information on the production, visit our website at DetroitOpera.org. You can also connect with us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and X, formerly known as Twitter. And if you enjoy our podcast, please do subscribe. Thanks to Jake Neer and Matthew Principe for their assistance in producing this podcast, and we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>